Welcome to It's All About the Questions, where learning to ask the right questions can help you achieve lifelong success. Now, here to help you ask all the right questions is award-winning author, international speaker, and business strategist, Laura Stewart. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the show, and especially welcome to a show episode that I had to delay, which just killed my heart because it was due to broadcast the day I had surgery in July, uh, emergency surgery in July, and it has weighed on my heart so heavily. And I'm glad that I can be here. I've done several shows now since I'm back. Um, still not at my 100% fittest, but I don't care. I You will watch my energy as I bring my guest on camera because he is somebody so dear to my heart he he like lives in my brain every time i get an email from him i get so excited because his words just excite my heart my creativity my energy um my being pretty much he is one of those people that from the first time you ever meet him or read one of his books you will be saying what i say this is somebody whose books you have to read this is somebody who you have to sign up for any email subscription he has and if you are as lucky as i am you get to call him friend and he call you friend back so without further delay. I am going to have, I'm going to bring John David Mann on camera. And John, I'm, I'm just going to share just another little moment that I want to share with people who don't know you other than what I've already said about you. This man right here, John David Mann, right? His, I met him through Bob Berg, who is your co-author of The Go-Giver. You happen to be at an event that Bob was holding called The Big Event many, many years ago. And I still have all the notes I took from when you were on stage, by the way. I still have them and I refer to them because you just blew me away. Recently, you, The Go-Giver, which everybody needs to get that book, um, in 2017 received the Living Now Book Awards Evergreen Medal for Contributions to Positive Global Change. Your books have been listed as the most motivated, well, I cannot speak, most motivational books ever written, HubSpot's 20 most highly rated sales books of all times, 10 books every leader should read. And everybody, his bio is awesome. You'll read it on here, but let's see. You founded a high school at 17. You're a composer. You're a concert cellist. You have co-written or ghost-written or solo-written more books. You also ran uh, an organization with what was it? Multi-million dollar sales distribution with a hundred thousand people inside the organization. I mean, I've read everything. I think everything you've ever written and own physical copies and your book, the recipe is oh, just mm -hmm. as you know, near and dear to my heart. So John, welcome to the show again. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> you did not mention surgeon, surgeon or um, astronaut. I don't know. Oh, I'm really I, I don't know. We didn't talk about that. And I didn't mention you are now a fiction writer as well. I had Brandon Webb on last week. You wrote this amazing book that I had the honor of reading in a draft called Steel Fear that I am so glad I went and went to the bathroom before I started reading 
the, <laughs> the advanced copy because I couldn't put the book down and I, I like just forgot every human need other than to devour the book. <laughs> that is the first reader review we've had that has said exactly those words. That's pretty cool. <laughs> I've had people say, I shouldn't have started this late at night because I lost hours of sleep. And so I always tell people, don't start it like after nine o'clock. Get, get get going at 6.30 in the evening if you can. Anyway, oh no, I, I started it at night and I read yeah. throughout the night and finished it. And I did the same with this other book that you also released at the same time, How to Write Good or at Least Gooder, which is a mind blowing book about the creative writing process. Yeah, that's a book I wanted to write for a long time. And it's it's kind of my love letter to uh, to my readers, I guess, to and, and to any readers, to people who love good writing, great writing, who love to write or write to read. So yeah, I'm very, very, and that book doesn't exist in physical form. It only exists in the ether, like you displayed it in your- I know, your, I'm very yeah. upset about that. Well, you know, sooner or later, probably within a year or two, I'll, I'll I think I'll get around to publishing that in as a real book uh, with paper and binding and everything, but right now it, it's electrons and deliverable instantaneously. And it's wonderful in, in that way, but there are certain books that I like to keep yeah. And, yeah. and touch and feel because there's a, it's like when writing with a pen, it's a yeah. different brain response with that tactile aspect of it. Yeah, I know it, there, there are, well, I totally agree. There are times when I, in writing, I, I have to get off my computer. I've got to sit in a chair with a pad of paper and a pen, uh, even though my handwriting is worse than any physician ever dreamed of being. It's like, I, sometimes I, I look at it hours later and I say, no, what is that word? And I have to really work at it. But yeah, there is something tactile about that. In books, you know, the smell of a book, the feel of a book, it's, it, is a, it is a wonderful, wonderful thing that will never go away, I believe. I hope not. I hope not. I remember when I was a little girl and my, my mom would always take me to the library, Yonkers Public Library on Central, oh, Central Avenue. And yeah. she always said it was because she couldn't afford to keep me in books. And yeah. <laughs> to the day she died, she's like, Laura, go to the library because I'd keep buying all these books, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And even when the Kindle came out and the Nook came out and all those, there were some books I still wanted to buy. And I went into the library and I just was determined to read everything in the children's section. So yes. I would go to the, like, I started at the A's of the, at that point, the fiction section. And I just took a, like, okay, here. And I just took like 10 books off the shelf yeah. and checked them out and returned those and took, you know, literally was going shelf by shelf through the oh library. And I love Winnie the Pooh. He's one of my favorite characters and favorite yeah. books of all time yeah. that I've read. But I opened that book up and the smell was horrible <laughs> in the book. Apparently it had gotten wet at some point and, and was mildewy, like and, mildewy yeah. and moldy. And for the longest time, I couldn't read Winnie the Pooh because that smell was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That, what a traumatic association. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Never have that with your book, so. <laughs> I hope not to. So I want to dive in because I was supposed to interview you on launch day when yes. I ended up having surgery for Steel Fear. July 13th. 
July 13th. Which does Actually, exist phys does exist physically, by the way. Yes, Actually. yes. And it's, it looks so much better physical. Um, <laughs> Actually, I had the surgery a week before, so I had just gotten out of the hospital, right? I had just gotten out of the hospital when the launch was. I am so curious, and you and I have spoken about this, right? But my listeners have never. You've always written nonfiction books. Yeah, yeah. Why a fiction book, which, by the way, everybody, is amazing, okay? Totally amazing and got picked up for several more books, and, and a few other things, which we'll talk about on the show, but why fiction and, and how did that have you have to change how you think about writing? Yeah, that's, well, that's a, that's a, that's a deep question because it goes into Mervs in the different directions. But I mean, on the face of it, it was opportunity as most of my books have, have kind of come to me as opportunities. In fact, honestly, most of the, most of the, no, all, all of the best things that have ever happened to me in my life have been opportunities that that came to me and that i was just fortunate enough to not be stubborn enough to actually listen and take them it's like you know the story of the go-giver you know, i wasn't looking for writing a book i was looking to write screenplays and bob berg came along and ruined my career as a screenwriter <laughs> and uh same with my wife i wasn't looking for for this woman i mean and so uh the opportunity to write this thriller, you know, came to me in the form of, of my buddy, Brandon, um, when we, and here's a quick, you know, here's sort of a quick introduction to the genesis of the book. Brandon Webb, uh, my friend is a former Navy SEAL, former Navy SEAL sniper, former Navy SEAL sniper instructor. His platoon was um, one of the first boots in the ground into Afghanistan, talk about history, um, in the late fall, early winter of 2001. And, um, he served over there for I don't know six months, nine months, and, and then came back to the States and, and began teaching other SEALs and was eventually recruited to uh, to revamp the entire sniper course, the SEAL sniper course, one of the most difficult courses in the um, uh, so he was writing a memoir in two thousand nine and my literary agent hooked me up with him. So you wanna write this book? Which at that point you could have asked the same question, but it would have been all of your books have been in leadership and business and self-development. What brought you into military nonfiction? And, and they're on the top Which, books in leadership that everybody should read, like yeah. almost every book you've ever written in that category. Well, that was my, you know, that was my area. Uh, I started out writing, well, you know, it, it, let me stick to your question before yeah, I go yeah. too far back. So uh, Brandon and I started talking. He wanted to write a memoir, uh, Navy SEAL Sniper. And one of our very first conversations, he said, hey, would you ever be interested in writing a thriller? And I said, a novel? And I honestly, I got to tell you, Laura, this is not false modesty. I did not think I could do that. I didn't think I had the chops to climb that kind of mountain. We'll talk a little bit in a moment about the difference between what I was doing and what right. this is. But I didn't think I could do it. Uh, my wife had been telling me for years, you should write novels. Not like you should do this, but like this is what I see you doing. Uh, I, I think this is in fact. I think this is why you were put here. She just really firmly believed that. I did not. <laughs> um, but the weird thing was, we should give a shout out to Anna, by the way. Yeah, we definitely should do that. I think we just did. Um, uh, she's in the next room. Uh, uh, so 
yeah, I said, of course I do. Of course I do. And inside I was going, no, no, you can't do that. You don't know how. <laughs> um, the weird thing was that all I was writing was nonfiction, but pretty much all I was reading was fiction. And I love mysteries. I love thrillers. I love crime novels. I, I've been reading, you know, and I, at that point I stepped it up. I started really increase my reading of all the, all the great classic and contemporary uh, crime thrillers. So, uh, you know, it took us 10 years before we could, I think, before we had the time, we could, we could carve out the time to do this because it required for me a two-year investment of my time without earning a penny, just a two-year investment, literally, in a financial sense as well as a time sense, um, two years off the calendar, which meant I have, had to be clear of other writing assignments, and also I had to have enough income coming in from other books so that I could just write. <laughs> and uh, after, Plus, I think it took me 10 years to garner the skill set honestly, to be able to attack this. So here's the difference, nonfiction, fiction. In one sense, there's no difference, which is that anything you write, your job as a writer is to find the story and tell it. Right. So like if you're writing a memoir, my first book with Brandon, The Red Circle, was this story of his life. Okay, everything I'm writing about that, I'm writing about in that book actually happened. Right? I'm not making anything up. It's all real. Uh, I might have to reconstruct some dialogue here and there, but you know, basically it all actually happened, but you still have to find the story. You still have to figure out, okay, I mean, yes, here's his life. He knows what happened, but where's the story in it? Where does it start and end? What are the high points? What are the low points? What are the challenges? What are the themes? What, you know, who are the, who are the principal characters? You can't tell a person's whole life for one thing that would take a billion pages. And for another thing, it's boring. Who wants to, you know, it's like nobody has time to read a 50 year long, you know, it would be like a movie that lasts for 50 years. You've got to find the story and tell that. The same thing is true in a business book. If you're writing a book like, you know, I don't know, Flash Foresight or, or Real Leadership, there's still a story in it. So in, if you're writing a blog post, if you're writing a email, <laughs> really, I mean, yeah. except for the most utilitarian, I'll be there at nine o'clock, you know, but uh, uh, really, if you're writing almost anything, there's a story in there and your job is to find it and tell it in a way that's engaging to the reader and, 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 and it engages them so that in the process, they come away with something they didn't have before they started. So they get value from it. So it changes them in some way. That's your job as a writer. You can't change them. You can't touch them. They can't take anything valuable away from it unless you engage them. And the way you engage them is with a story because a story is resonates with what we're doing here. So when I, I hear a great story, it vibrates with my life. So I'm, I'm engaged. I'm hooked into it as if I'm hearing someone talk about me. And so that's a story. And that's true in any piece of writing. But fiction is harder, <laughs> I think. Um, it, it, you'd think, well, you could say whatever you want because you're making it all up. So it must be easier. It isn't like that. It's the opposite. Um, first of all, you can't say whatever you want. Uh, once you decide what universe you're playing in, you have to be faithful to that universe. If you're writing, even if you're writing a fantasy novel set on some distant planet that you made up, once you establish your own ground rules, you have to be consistent with those. I have never done that. So it's, I'm just speaking, you know, theoretically, but with this sucker, I'm writing about, uh, 
a culture, a military culture, a highly structured military culture on an aircraft carrier. And there is no readership more finicky than a military readership. I didn't write this for military people, by the way. I mean, Brandon and I wrote it for just people. <laughs> most of, you know, most of the readers that I've heard from are civilians. They're not military people. But a lot of military people reading it, too, are people who have military history. You can't get anything wrong. It's all got to be realistic. It's all got to be faithful. So, no, you can't just make stuff up. Um, just like in the sci-fi realm. I mean, you created yeah. a world, this world yeah. of the aircraft carrier. You took it to, you kept the realism, but you yes. also created this aura around it. Yeah. So the thing with the thriller is writing a book like the last book Brandon and I wrote before this was Mastering Fear, which we've talked about, which I love that book. One I of my things. I think it's one of our best books and, and it's, it's been very popular and it, I think it, you know, it's one of those kind of forever books. It really fills a function for people, nonfiction. So writing a book like that is sort of like taking a group of people on a museum tour. You say, okay, everybody, everybody ready? All right. Um, this is the introduction. Everybody is ready. Anybody need to go to the bathroom? Everything's cool. Okay. We're going to go to the first exhibit. Follow me into this room. This is chapter one. Now we look around the room. I show you, I point things out. You take a while and look around yourself. All right, follow me. Next room, chapter two. I show you all these exhibits. At some point, maybe we take a lunch break. Uh, you know, so I walk you through exhibit after exhibit. You may have questions. I'll do my best to answer them. I'll do a bit of patter. You'll get to look for yourself at things. At the end, we come out and, you know, maybe there's a, it, it, there's somebody in the tour guide who says, kind of recaps the whole thing and says, here's, here's what we learned. That's a book. The thriller is like taking a dozen people and saying, everybody ready? Okay, hold on to this string. Don't let go. We are going to run over that tightrope, which is stretched over the Grand Canyon. <laughs> Do not look down or we'll all die. You have 60 seconds to get to the other side. Go. And 60 seconds is 400 pages. And you can't look down. You can't stop to look around the scenery which I thought you could. I was surprised when I started writing this. I had plenty of writing and looking around at the scenery, you know, and I didn't realize that every time I looked around at the scenery, my 12 people were all dead <laughs> because the, that group is the reader. I, I've, I've said that, that uh, writing a memoir is about your subject, the person whose life you're, you're describing. Writing a, a business book or a how-to book or other nonfiction book is, is about the topic. Writing a thriller is about the reader. Mm. That's a whole different thing. It's about the reader experience. You have to hold them like this. Every second, every sentence, every paragraph. It's, um, it's wild. Okay, and so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold yeah. you there for one second because that's perfect for me to share something that um, to me, I, I didn't know it when I picked this out, right? But it's the perfect example of what you just talked about. Okay. But for me, it really sealed the deal of why I love, love and adore not only as a human, but as a writer. Okay. So I'm going to give somebody a little introduction to a character, a, a main character inside Steel Fear that seals the deal that everybody better just go buy this book right after or even during this interview. Okay. This is not only the first time Monica meets Chief Finn, it's also the first time, this is you talked about in your book, um, Write Good, write good. Or Gooder. Yep. 
Um, and I had also highlighted it in Steel Fear. Okay, here we go. As the bird lowered to the tarmac, Monica spotted the two men walking toward them, illuminated by runway lights. Even from a hundred feet off, she had zero trouble identifying the seal. He was tall, muscular, powerful, carried his fully loaded backpack as if it weighed no more than a paper boarding pass. He didn't stride so much as he loped, moving with a dangerous grace that made her think of the mountain lion she'd seen back home. Perfect specimen, asshole. As they drew closer, she could make out the officer lagging behind the seal in his desert camis, lugging the other man's kit bag and gun case. This little guy was totally eclipsed by the seal, not just a head shorter, but almost a different species. Thin wiry limbs, knobby joints, oversized eyes. He looks like a marsupial, she thought. In the Navy, rank was everything. Who outflew, outperformed, outlasted who, and seals were a breed apart. The short, awkward-looking officer might technically outrank the big guy, but the big guy outclassed him in every other way. The contrast was almost comical. Marsupial meet mountain lion. Stickman leaned out the door and shouted over the dinner of the rotors, we're here for Chief Finn. The marsupial took the backpack from the mountain lion, stepped forward without a word, and boarded the Hilo. <laughs> I have goosebumps every time I read that paragraph. In case anybody missed it, the short, awkward guy is the seal. <laughs> <laughs> the tall mountain lion guy is not the seal. He's, who, not. We think a seal is. He's who we think a seal is. He's not who a seal is. I, I mean, just the... Now, some people might have said the short, awkward guy just gets on the plane. They might have skipped all that setup. But in your other kind of writing, the parable stories, the leadership stories, there's more short, distinct kind of stuff. This description and, and allowing the reader to go down a road in their mind to create this world is so different and yeah i, I mean I, and, wow and here's, a weird, here's a weird thing um I, that's so funny that's like one of my favorite passages i love that you picked that out um the other night brandon and i were on a on a podcast and and they asked us both the host asked each of us to share a favorite passage in the book and he brandon went first and he picked that one so it's like oh, oh really i gotta do, i gotta do something else <laughs> which which is not hard but anyway um yeah, here's the funny thing. You know, when when people started reviews started coming out of the book, a number of people, and, and I'm talking about, you know, uh, uh, sort of superstars of the crime world, people who really know crime, crime writers who are best-selling writers themselves, were describing it as action-packed from beginning to end. You know, yeah, ed edge of your seat. And here's the funny thing: there's actually not that much action in it. <laughs> Yeah, there it's, is. It's, no, because it's build-up. No, it's not. suspense. So, yeah, it's, it's so it's, funny because one of the challenges of the book was we're on an aircraft carrier, and an aircraft carrier, just to give a sense of it, is like it's an empire, a steel tube the size of the Empire State Building. On its side, in the water, 6,000 people sealed up inside, men and women, mostly young, for six months. Um, you know, see you in six months at San Diego. So it, it, it's it's a claustrophobic environment to say the least highly structured military it may be the most structured 
example of a, of a military environment, uh, naval vessel. And there's no drinking, there's no bars, there's no saloons, there's no, you know, letting off steam is going into the library and watching a, a movie that you've probably seen 14 times already. There's not really a lot of credible opportunity for the kind of action you'd normally find in a thriller. This is like, you know, Jack Reacher might, might you know, beat up six guys in chapter three. Can't happen here. It, it just doesn't, isn't credible. So one of the challenges was, we're going to write 400 pages and, and actually there's not much opportunity for action. So, but you said it, it feels like there's a lot of action. Yeah. Because, <laughs> because we're, we're asking questions and not giving the answers and setting up situations and then not knowing what they mean and just asking unanswered question after unanswered question. That's the nature of a thriller. You have to like weave this sort of rope out of threads that never seem to end and you're not quite sure what they are, but you know that they mean something. Yeah. So it's, which is why I was wow. glad I went to the bathroom before I started reading <laughs> the book because yes. I forgot all human functions that I needed, like drinking water or anything. I just was so absorbed in, in the book for the entire time. It's really fun. Really fun. And I'm, I'm really curious, John, because this is something you and I have not talked about. I mean, I've interviewed you, what, four times, maybe five on this show. At least, prior. Yeah. yeah. It, you and Brandon are my only guests that have been on that often. And you're on, you've been on more than, than uh, Brandon has. And I know your writing process. We've talked about it before. Yeah. My guess is for this your process had to morph perhaps into something slightly different. And I, I know my listeners would be really curious because the brain works differently when you're writing nonfiction than yeah. fiction. It's like writing technical writing to writing fiction. I mean, you can't write the same way. So did your process change? It, it, yeah, it did. I mean, and again, this is going to be one of those yes and no answers. In one sense, it didn't change because, you know, the the basic process, at least for me, basic process of writing happens in three parts, collecting stuff, collecting raw material, some of which I'll use and a lot of which I won't, but collecting raw material, which for a nonfiction book might be interviews. Uh, it might be, you know, listening to the you know, present video presentations, readings, books on the subject, whatever, gathering material. Then comes the, the thing of actually writing the book, getting a draft ready. And then the third phase is interacting with my co-author and other readers to kind of revise and improve and change and kind of finish it. The middle part I do by myself. First part. So for this, there was an enormous amount of research. The first part, talking to Brandon, I spent months online. Uh, I, I bought a $1,200 book about naval ships. Ended up there was a single page in the book that, rel that related to my <laughs> ship, and it wasn't very useful. So I was like, <laughs> we actually returned that book and got our money back. But um, yeah, it, it was more research than I've ever done before, for sure. But the actual, so in that sense, it was all the same. Same, same, looks like the same on the outside. And it was the same on the inside in that I, you know how I write, I get up in the, get up in the morning and I, I sit with a pad of paper and I just kind of look for ideas and threads. And then I spend 
sometime later in the day, kind of hammering it out in the laptop. So it's kind of like right Don't brain, forget, left brain. With your tea. Yeah. You write, sure. but you have your cup of tea. Exactly. <laughs> cup of tea. But it was different. It, it, it didn't just change my process. It changed my life. And I mean, I've always been somebody as an adult who get up at like 7.30, 8, 8.30. I'm not an early riser. Um, never have been particularly. I was working on this and I heard Don Winslow, one of my favorite writers, um, on an interview saying, his routine, describing his routine, he says he gets up at five. I was like, oh, wow. And I start, I reached a point where I had to start getting up at six in the morning and then 5.30 in the morning and then Ooh. five in the morning. Never done that in my life. Um, we changed our whole schedule. I, I needed to have this chunk of completely uninterrupted time before the world around me woke up um, to, to plunge into that world. So that was different. I had to, the, um, the immersion w for me was a whole lot more total than it's ever been writing any other book. And then the other side of it was, um, I learned so much about writing in this book. I've never had to be so exacting in the rewrite process. My first draft was 150,000 words. The finished draft, published book is about 100,000 words. That's, a, that's another book that you cut out. We, it's every third word, uh, every third letter. Just take out the consonants and your vowels. Um, and it was extremely difficult at first, but there was a lot of stuff in that, in that first draft that just wouldn't have worked. It would have been the equivalent of saying, Oh, look down. This is good. Look around. Oh, we all fell off the wire to keep that tension, keep that thread going the entire page. And you think 400 pages is a lot. Well, 550 pages would have been even more. Um, so I learned what I learned in the, in this process was how much better things can get than you think, how much better a scene, how much better a paragraph, how much better a sentence can get than you think. I've had paragraphs where I thought that is pretty good. Can be so much better. You have me. <laughs> you, know? you have me thinking about what an editor would do to a James Michener books right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, you know, some writers have the opportunity to be prolix. I I know. I mean, I remember reading James Michener's Hawaii, and literally, it just got so inundated in detail. I yeah. I skipped like twenty pages at a time and never lost the thread. <laughs> Sorry. I know, I know, it's true. One of Brandon's <laughs> favorite writers is Michener. One of my teachers, Harry Bingham, who's a novelist in the UK, who's a wonderful crime novelist, um, who has written, who I think is maybe the most interesting crime novel protagonist of all time. Uh, she's just fascinating. A anyway, Harry, who's also a great teacher, he talks about the rewrite process and he says, your goal is to take out words without taking out content. Mm. And that's really what we did from 150,000 to 100,000 words. I did take out a few characters, which I didn't think was possible. I did take out whole chapters. Uh, I took out, you know, some some plot elements, actually. But not a lot, but not a lot. Mostly it was taking out words, taking out sentences, taking out pieces, compressing, compressing. Um, as well as, you know, moving things to happen earlier so they didn't have to be explained later and just a lot of readjustment and realignment. 
Uh, and mostly it was taking out words, but not taking out content. And, and that's where your other book that's only available as um, an ebook comes in, How to Write Good yes. or At Least Gooder comes yes. in. You actually share, and I was trying to bring it up on my phone um, versus my iPad where I have the steel fear cover. So yes. in, in this book, <laughs> you actually share some of the edits from this book, how this yeah. is where it started and this is where it ended. And you talk about that and from the go-giver and, and a number of yes. your other books, the difference a word can make or the removal of a word can make or, yeah. um, or punctuation, the difference that punctuation can make. I wanted to show um, people who want, who want to write. And I don't necessarily mean people who want to be professional writers or publish books. I just mean people who want to write. Again, blog posts, emails, Facebook posts, whatever. A lot of people <laughs> express themselves with, with, with words. So I wanted to show people exactly what I mean by rewriting, by taking out words and making something better, by finding a good sentence and making it shine. So yeah, I just used, I put a ton of examples in there from, from all from my own stuff because I was there when it happened. So I have access to the crappy first version. Yeah, if I had I, access to the crappy first versions of, of Neil Gaiman or, or you know, or Don Winslow, I would put those, but I don't have those. Oh, my gosh. I would love to see a few first drafts from Neil yeah. Gaiman. Yeah, yeah, me too. Because his excellent. books are just so warped and crazy. <laughs> I would love to see the outtakes. Yeah, they're probably all really good. <laughs> One of my favorite books about writing ever was gifted to me by my now ex-husband before I, I wrote my first book, Stephen King's On Writing. Yes. And you actually mentioned that book in, in your book on writing. Um, How to Write Good or At Least Gooder. And I, I actually saw, over the years I've known you, right? There is a lot of Stephen King's On Writing in you the how he describes his his process and how i i remember him writing in the book how after he'd been hit by that that van that car and he's on the side of the road and you know the guy's yeah. waiting and he goes to the hospital and he they thought he was gonna die and he finally gets home and he couldn't get upstairs to his office and he had been a raging alcoholic and then he wasn't an alcoholic and he you know, his wife was like, well, you can write. You don't have to be upstairs to write. And she sits this little table in a in the hallway on the way to the kitchen and gives him coffee and whatever. And he's like, well, I can't do this because this is how I write. And, and as I was reading Steel Fear and imagining your own process, it's not the alcoholic, it's not the van crashing and, you know, going to the hospital. But for me, as I was reading it, I was thinking through that going, John had his own crash here and he had to rethink how words go on paper. So to hear you describe that, but you know, like I'm, I'm not the usual reader, right? Because I, I'm a John David Mann fanatic. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know which super fan. Fan, fanish, fanology, fantastic and the Palooza, we'll think of it. Right? Yeah, you know, and an admirer of your writing. I mean, even when you send me emails, I, I look at it to help improve my writing. 
because the way you put well, words together. So to me, this was like you had your own, um, some people call it come to Jesus moment. I don't know. But I have this feeling, I have this feeling that it's going to change you. I don't know. Are you ever going to write another nonfiction book? Well, that's a really great question. Uh, Another yes and no, if I may. Okay. Um, I doubt I'll ever write another memoir. Okay. Uh, I doubt I'll ever write another business book. I mean, I think that this has opened a door and closed a door for me. Um, I, I've my one can never know for sure, as the famous James Bond movie said, "Never say never." But um, I think, or never say never again in the reading you know of it. You know, the title of that movie came from Sean Connery saying to his wife, "He was never, never going to do another Bond movie," and she said, "Never say never." Anyway, um, so uh, my at this point, never say never. But my expectation is. From here on out, I'm just going to write novels and parables. I'll never stop writing parables. I love them. I just love those. But then again, a parable is like a mini novel. It's like a miniature, stylized, stripped-down novel. Mm. So it's kind of a thriller and a parable are kind of like two two ends of the spectrum. And I just I just love I love that that form. We'll see. But on the on your your point, um, I did something else with this I've never done before. I want to make two points here. Here's the first. When I finished my first draft, I hired a consultant. I shelled out my own money, um, roughly twelve hundred, same same as the price of the book that we returned. Uh, better spent this this twelve hundred. I shelled out money to a, a consultant from overseas to read the manuscript and critique it. I've never done that. Wow. Never. Uh, I've every book I write before it goes to press. I give it to a circle, even before it goes to my publisher, I have a circle of readers that I give it to, um, you know, half a dozen to a dozen people who critique it. And uh, my wife is the first reader, a friend of mine, Dan Clements is the second reader. And I mentioned them in the, in the book, How to Write Good. And then of course, if, if I'm writing for a publisher, which I usually am, I got editors of the publisher and they're fantastic and I work with them closely. And I've never shelled out my own money. I've never hired my own consultant to, read my thing and tell me how bad it was and why. And it was just a mind-blowing experience because she basically wrote back and she, when she heard the premise of the book, by the way, premise of the book, a disgraced Navy SEAL stalks a serial killer on an aircraft carrier in the midst of the Pacific Ocean. <sighs> That's, it. That's it. So she just got that. She said, I want to, I want to, I want this job. I want to consult this guy. So we, we hooked up. She read the manuscript. And she pointed out all the, there were a lot of lovely things. And then she said, you know, but I don't think you understand how a thriller works. And she's, it's really literally. That's tough said. criticism. And but she, you wanted she, it. So that's what I want. I knew I needed it. I knew I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't know what I was doing. You know, this is one of my favorite life lessons that, that, that as important as it is to follow your bliss and follow your dream and follow your heart and believe in yourself and follow your path. Yeah, all good. And, there are people out there who know things you don't know, and you need to know how to listen to them without having your ego crushed, without taking it personally, without having your ears shut, so your hands folded over your chest. So she, she you know, kind of ripped it up in, in many big ways, and I completely rewrote it. And then I gave it to our agent, and it was then 150,000 words, and she said, this is, you know, this is good. Of course, you know. It has to come down to 100,000 words, and it's like nowhere near finished. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? 
Mastering Fear, we had a phenomenal editor at our publisher's portfolio, um, Bria Sanford. She's just one of my favorite editors. And she actually did more. She took Mastering Fear, the original manuscript, and she made suggestions to it that had me change things around, take out a whole chapter and reduce the book by probably 20% or 15%, something like that. So I'd had that experience, but there was nothing like this. This was like, I'm sorry, rip it all up. It's like taking a, a suit you've made or a dress and taking out all the seams and laying the pieces on the table and saying, we're going to sew it all over again. So that was different. That was new. I'm, um, I'm like in shock because, you know, <laughs> I, I consider myself a writer. You know, I, I've got award-winning book and, and all of that. Yeah. Nothing like you. And my editorial process was more questions that they threw at me, right? Well, I mean, and, when and, I say and that rip was it up, really yeah. different. And, and to yeah. have somebody go rip the seams open, put it there, it sounds like a, a, a metaphor for life, really, John. And I know yeah. a lot of people, I'm taking me a little off topic here, but I think this is really important to ask. I, I want your answer anyway, <laughs> if nobody else does, I do. Like with COVID, so many people's lives have been completely disrupted and changed yeah. and whatever. How did you pick yourself up from what to so many people would make them throw that book in the trash and never restart the book or restart their lives down yeah, that it's, path? It's, it's weird, you know, with COVID, I mean, personally, nobody in our immediate family died. We had people in our immediate family get sick, but get better again, <clears throat> not have terrible lingering effects. We've had neighbors die. A uh, guy across the street, one house down, just died two weeks ago. I mean, so I missed my son's wedding because of COVID. Um, that was, you know, you can live through that. I got to see the video. It was, we're, it's okay. But we didn't suffer personally that much. Um, our income dove like everybody else's, uh, but it certainly changed our lives. All of a sudden, we couldn't go anywhere. My life is, you know, both of our lives were based on flying all over the place. And we flew nowhere and, you know, everything changed. But here's something. And this when isn't just about COVID, right? This no, is no, 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 it's like not. Because when, when the Go-Giver first came out, the economy crashed. This is 2008, 2009. The economy tanked. And it was like it was like 9-11 all over again. But 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 economically, you know, and, and in a way more personal for more people. Suddenly, people lost the value of their houses. They were underwater, and and the whole world profoundly changed. Um, the Go Giver had just come out, and we expected that this lovely, gentle little parable about a man who's having a tough time at work, and he sees a wise man who gives him some ideas. Like people's like, yeah, who's going to read that book when I can't pay my mortgage and I'm dying, and like all this you know stuff is happening. Uh, and sales picked up. The worst the economy got. People, the, the go-giver did much better after the crash than it was even doing before the crash. And, and what we saw was people in that crisis, as you're describing, have their lives, their lives torn up, everything questioned, started questioning everything and asking themselves what's really important and re-examining their priorities and re-examining the, the big pieces of their lives. You know, Stephen Covey's example where you, you know, if you have big rocks in your life and stones and sand. And if you don't put the big rocks in the jar first, then you'll never be able to fit them if you put all the sand in first. 
if you don't take care of the important things of your life first, then all of the little pickiest stuff will crowd it out. Well, people started looking at the big rocks. And I think that's what COVID's done. I know it's certainly done it for me. I've started to look at what's important. Uh, honestly, staying in hotels and flying on planes was a big part of my life. It has happened zero in the last 19 months. And that's a small thing. But, right. you know, uh, going out to eat with friends, going to parties, seeing, having book signings, no book signings here. Yeah. You know. So that's, you know, yeah, it's been interesting. And so in a way, you know, writing is a, is a metaphor for living. And I, I talk about this in the last chapter at the end of that book, How to Write Good, that uh, I, I think the biggest stumbling block for writers who don't achieve their potential or people who want to write but don't get where they want to go, don't fulfill their potential as a writer, is the challenge of embracing the, re the rewrite process. The challenge of looking at what you've done and saying, there's good stuff in here, but there's an awful lot of garbage. It's an awful lot of mediocrity. Uh, or there's an awful lot of eh, that could be just so much better. And then having both the faith and the discipline to work away at it, make it better, 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 better. And that's what your life has to be. You have to make your life better. You have to improve yourself. You have to say, I'm not a bad person, but I'm doing a bunch of crap. I I'm managing these relationships, those tasks, this situation, not very well. Not, it's not an indictment of me as a person any more than rewriting is an indictment of the book. Uh, but I'm not there yet. <laughs> so let's, let's get better. Let's improve. Let's rewrite. Let's revise. So maybe to my listeners out there that when they heard you talk about this person who critiqued your book <laughs> and basically you had to rip it up at the seams and start all over, maybe they need to read Mastering Fear that you and Brandon wrote to talk about how to dip your toes back in the water to get over your fear of swimming or being yeah. in the water. Um, because yeah. so many people, I mean, I, John, I've seen this with me, right? A, a friend of mine the other day said, um, we were getting on a call, I'm doing a project for them, for her. And as I'm getting on the call, I get a phone call from somebody that doesn't call me very often who were waiting to hear if my uncle had died. And it was my mm -hmm. cousin calling to say he died literally as I'm getting on this call. But mm -hmm. I, I had to take the call because he's my yeah. favorite uncle and we shared a passion for reading, right? And she said to me, I don't know how you have even another shoe that can drop in your life. You know, that whole idea of the other shoe's going to drop, that yeah. people are waiting for it to drop. She's like, well, you're like a centipede, and all of your shoes have dropped. There can't be anything left. And then your uncle dies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, um, by the way, you remind me very much of my uncle, which is a really ah, awesome thing. <laughs> that's great. So, that's um, good to hear. The funeral I'm, I'm alive. Was, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the funeral was yesterday. So, mm. um what do you say to somebody who feels like every attempt they've made to write 
or to have something go right in their life, it just feels like the other shoe keeps dropping. What what do you say to them to help them pick themselves up? You kind of touched on a little bit of it, but just a little bit deeper before we start closing up the show today. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... Uh, I think with writing and with with a life situation, I might say it a little differently. Sure. <laughs> but um, for me, it's always about. Let me just back up two feet and say, when I get in a situation like people often ask about writer's block, when I get in a situation where I, I have a writer's block, or more likely, I'm at a point where I, the book isn't working, this chapter isn't working. There's like this chapter is like not very good. And nothing I'm doing is working. It's just not getting better. And that does happen. It happens frequently. Uh, I'm like at this point where I, I, I know it has to get better and I can't see what to do. It's like I've tried a dozen things. Nothing's working. The solution is almost always to take a step backwards. And for me, say, what am I saying? What, what is the big picture of my story? Where is my story going? It, it may be, technically, it may be asking, what does this character want? Where is this character at in their arc in this story? Or, you know, what does this character not know yet? Or some other big plot question. But the larger question is, what is really going on? What am I trying to say? What's important here? What are the important pieces? And I think that that is true in difficult life, life, difficult life circumstances, whatever they might look like is to, when it's really difficult to find your way through the keyhole, is to back up and say, okay, wait, hang on. Number one, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a person and I'm alive. There must be a good reason for that. So let's have some faith that that's a good thing. Take that as a background. But then number two, what's important here? What matters to me a lot? What matters more than anything? What What is, you know, what are the greatest gifts in my life? What is the greatest if not meaning, let's just say most important, uh, uh, you know, context to my life right now, you know, and it may be that, you know, I'm not done with a, you know, being a parent or with being a writer or with being a friend or with being a whatever. I have something in my life that I haven't finished yet. Um, you, you just have to back up and say what matters, what's important. And then all these other things that that also matter, they matter a lot, but they're impermanent because they just ended or they just messed up or they just died or whatever just happened. That can't be the end of everything. So what's left and out of what's left, what's important? And that's mm. what I gotta go back to. Out of what's left, what's important. I love that, John. Um, we're getting close to the end. How do people, I'm definitely getting my copy, physical copy soon. How do people get a copy of Steel Fear, get a copy of your book on writing? Oops. Hey, you had it. It was gone. Started going in there and it just started disappearing. And um, also because I think everybody who's listening. Physical. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, you hold your copy up. How do people get on your mailing list to find out everything else you're doing as well? Okay, well, first of all, I don't mail to my list very much if you ever, ever get on the list, so I will not uh, inundate you. But the, the, the point of my list mainly is so I can let people know when I have a book coming out. 
and or if I have any events around that book coming out. Or you um, write a beautiful blog post. <laughs> yeah, or if, or if I write a blog post. Um, my, my book, How to Write Good, which Laura showed on the uh, phone, uh, that's not available at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or independent bookstores or anywhere else. It's only available at my website. Like I said, someday I'll publish that, but I'm, I'm right now it's only a, it's a free download off my site for people who sign for my, for my newsletter. And it's not like a 12-page booklet. It's a full-size book um, on how to write good or at least gooder. I don't claim to be excellent. I don't claim to be the best, nor probably do you, but we can all get gooder. That's that. That's it. And that's at my website. And my website, we, you can get all my books at my website. It's Steal Fear, buy links to Steal Fear, and excerpt. All my books, you can get buy links, you can get excerpts, you can get sample chapters, read about the background and history of the book. It's all at my website. My blog is at my website. And my website is just my name, John David Mann, M-A-N-N, two N's, John David Mann. Dot com. As it magically appears. Amazing. <laughs> okay. And the books are available everywhere books are sold. I fully expect Steel yeah. Fear to hit on the New York Times bestseller list at some point because it is so worthy of that getting from that your lips to From your lips to the New York Times uh, book reviewer's ears. Yeah. And the sequel is already in progress. Yeah, I was going to mention this earlier, just because the process has been very different, interestingly, um, just because I, I didn't hire a consultant. I didn't go through quite that much trauma <laughs> writing the sequel. I just finished it. I mean, I just finished my first draft two days ago. Uh, put the last period in the last sentence. It's called Cold Fear. It does not take place in an aircraft carrier. It takes place in Iceland. And I can tell you that safely because if you read Steel Fear, when you get to the back of the book, there are five chapters of the new book in there. Um, and that's going to come out next time. So, yep, book two is already already in process. And Brandon mentioned that there might be a series coming too? We optioned the, uh, yeah, we sold the, the, the screen rights to NBC Universal. Um, there, it's now in development as a TV series for their streaming platform, which is called Peacock. Peacock is like Netflix uh, or Amazon Prime or one of those, but it's it's a underdog, so you know, it's it's less it's less well known. But we are one of its properties, and I have no idea when it'll come. You know, honestly, even if it'll come, but it's in development. Someone is writing it. It's happening. We got a fantastic producer, so that should be coming to a streaming platform near you soon. Yeah, and I will be subscribing to whatever platform so I can watch it. Me, yes. yeah, me too. Yeah. <laughs> Last thought you want to share yeah. with my listeners, Sean? Just that you know, I know. I think I say this all the time, but I I think that you know one of the things that um, you know why do we write books? Write books for readers. I mean, somebody just was writing to me the other day who knows the crime writing world really really well, and she said that she's watching writers and, and she sees writers who think that you know readers are beneath them and they won't sign autographs or they don't like doing it or they act like this is a bother and say i don't i don't grasp that readers are the point of writing um it, it, and, and so there's nothing as exciting to me as in as taking something vague and putting it in a concrete terms you can communicate it to another person and then they and then they read it and they get it and they communicate with you and you engage I mean, I just love that. So um, 
I think that's not unique to me. I think that's true for all of us. We've all got stories in us that are unique to us. Nobody else could have written Steel Fear. Not because it's nobody else is good enough. It's because nobody else is me. We're, nobody else is you. Nobody else is anybody. Right. We've all got life experiences that are uniquely ours, perspectives that are uniquely ours. So, you know, nobody could write the book you, you could write or the blog you could write. Um, so, you know, I, that would be how I'd close. I would just say for everybody, you know, read great writing and, you know, find your story and find a way to tell it. I love that, John. Thank you as always for being on the show. I, I just love you to death. And please stay safe, you and Anna. Oh, yeah. And, and just, yeah, stay out of harm's way. Okay. Well, all right. Because I want to have you on again and again and again and again. And once COVID's all done, actually have a cocktail or a cup of coffee or, well, I'm a tea yeah. drinker like you. Have a cup of tea together. We will do it. All right. Hang on, and uh, I'll be right back to you. Thank you, everybody, for watching, listening to the show today. You might have been watching it live with live stream with John today. And if, if not, um, you're just listening on podcast. It does not matter. What matters is that you ask the right questions and that you grab a copy of Steel Fear. Go to John's website, get a copy of How to Write Good or Gooder, because it is a beautiful piece of writing in itself. Last week, I had Brandon Webb on, and we talked about where the origins of this book, Steel Fear, came from. And I, for me, the greatest part of my week is I get to talk to people like John, David Mann, like Brandon Webb, like Bob Berg, and so many others to share with you their stories and the questions that they ask themselves as they're going through their process and they're going through their life. So hopefully you got something from today that maybe asked you, got you asking yourself a different question. I'd love to know what those are. So post on social media everywhere at the Laura Stewart. You can find me or email me. No matter what you do, at the end of the day, the right questions can change your life. Have a great day, everyone. Stay safe. And if you can, hug somebody you love. You've been listening to It's All About the Questions, starring Laura Stewart. Connect with Laura at itsallaboutthequestions.com and download a free workbook that will help you ask better questions starting today.